Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Douglas Brinkley. Doug is the Catherine Sarnoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He serves as CNN's presidential historian. He has written on a wide range of subjects, from Rosa Parks to the landing of a man on the moon. Six of his books were named to the New York Times Notable Books of the Year. He has received a Grammy in 2017 for co-producing Presidential Suite, Eight Variations on Freedom for the Best Jazz Ensemble. He has written extensively on Jack Kerouac, Hunter Thompson, Bob Dylan, and many others. Doug, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So impeachment is, is in the air. And we'll find out whether this was uh, a permissible impeachment or not. But what I'd like to talk about with you as a presidential historian is whether or not you're worried about the increasing use of impeachment to resolve differences better left to voters. How, how do you see it playing out? We, we've had three impeachments in, in a re- very short period of, of time. Yeah, I think our country has to be careful that it's not impeachment mania, that every time we get a president in, we can marshal enough votes to find a cause for impeachment. Uh, That wasn't what that was meant for. Um, You know, when you go back and look at the previous impeachments, you know, Andrew Johnson's was caught up into the tone and tenor, the really the civil unrest of the post-Civil War era, uh, the fact that Lincoln's assassination was such a dramatic moment, and Andrew Johnson was a Southerner, um, and they 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 went after him um, for firing the Secretary of War, among other things, and so it was sort of an odd one-off thing in history. You know, Andrew Johnson was impeached. Uh, it pretty much was the only thing people knew about Andrew Johnson. But then we started during the Bill Clinton years the the drumbeat of impeachment particularly once Newt Gingrich took control of Congress and you had the contract for America and we had new forms of media um, to um, kind of keep a steady diet of uh, impeachment going. And in my view, Bill Clinton never should have been impeached. Um, I think he got a a raw deal on that going that far. Um, And I'm not sure our nation was served uh, by that um, long drawn out um, you know, Clinton saga. Um, Donald Trump presented America with a whole new problem um, because as soon as he was inaugurated, uh, the amount of of flaunting of laws of being a um, a rogue president and taking pride in it. In other words, representing the federal government while you're trying to destroy the federal government was bound to cause problems Um, One of the reasons is simply in the 21st century, our elections become razor close in most cases. I mean, that we had, you know, Bush v. Gore and it goes to the Supreme Court and it's all part and parcel of since the 1990s, this bitter divide. Um, And so here it is. We're at the epic, strange, weird moment of Donald Trump being impeached twice And uh, let's hope that's the last one we have for a long, long time. But I do think the insurrection of January 6th was a cause for great alarm. And I do find that Trump seems on the video and audio record alone to be culpable for that insurrection. 
But as you know better than anybody, Michael, it's a political act impeachment, not a legal one. And we'll have to see how this all plays out this week. Exactly. And as I looked at the impeachments of the past, I agree with you that Andrew Johnson was essentially being impeached because he was interfering with the Republican legislature, the Senate, who was trying to pass legislation, and he kept vetoing it. And then in Clinton, I thought it was a personal dalliance. Trump number one was a little bit closer to me, at least on Article One, the the phone, the Ukrainian phone call. Um, but this one seems much more clear cut in terms of the unacceptable behavior of of a president that has to be seen as an effort to overthrow um, the the election of Joe, of Joe Biden. I don't see how you'd not take this on that way. Yeah, I I agree. I think that the Democrats had to do it. Um, We know they had had to do it because I'm not completely sure it's great for the Democratic Party right now. Uh, Joe Biden's trying to show that he can play centrist politics. Uh, We're all traumatized by COVID. Uh, People are just getting the vaccines. The rollout's kicking in, but their fears of new variants. There was an opportunity perhaps to, uh, due to the friendship of Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden, to maybe do some infrastructure work together. Um, but this, um, uh, this impeachment is inconvenient. It's an inconvenient impeachment, but the Democrats had to go forward. Uh, you couldn't just allow him to get away with this because then any president on their last 48 hours, they could do any kind of damage to the country and say, what well, now it's, um, it's, I'm not in office anymore. So, uh, too bad you can't impeach me. Um, if there, if the our smart legislators and lawmakers over the years recognized that there might be an, a moment when a somebody has to be banned from politics, meaning banned from city council or you know working in a local uh, sanitation department, just banned. And Donald Trump might be facing that fate. I doubt it. I think this is going to be uh, a question of a divided Republican Party and a unified Democratic Party. But I keep using the line by the poet Robert Frost, the only way out is through. We all want to get rid of this Trump era. We want to go through this impeachment, get out of it, and hopefully we have some bluer skies this late spring on the COVID front and the fact that Americans find some common ground in one way or another. Yeah. So – How will history record the Trump presidency? I think as an insurgence and, 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 you know, the word narcissism will be used in overstuffed personality like we've never seen before. Um, You know, Donald Trump is a combination of a lot of currents in American history. There is P.T. Barnum, um, you know, salesmanship there, but it also moved in with, Strom Thurmond, Dixie Kratt, um, you know, um, bigotry or George Wallace states rights thinking. It picked up some of Ross Perot's anti-NAFTA sentiment. I mean, we sometimes forget that Ross Perot in 1992 won 19% of the vote running a terrible third party candidacy. He was awful. He was kind of running and not running. He still got 19% of the vote. So uh, Trump's 
pulled in some of these currents and really stole the Republican Party, made it in his own image. Um, but I think he, so it's I think he's going to be ranked as one of the worst, if not worst presidents. But I don't think we're done with Trumpism. You know, Millard Fillmore left the White House and became a leader in the Know Nothing Party movement. Uh, Donald Trump, if he gets through this impeachment, uh, really holds the cards for the Republican Party, because if they try to abandon him, he can always threaten to do a magna party, a third party uh, find some rich people to fund it. Um, and, you know, it, he can be a menace for the GOP. So we're still living in the age of Trumpism. The lights of it have been dimmed. The lights of Trumpism might, might really fade away in a generational sense. Um, but it, it's still with us. And he's a political populist z- representing xenophobia and American um you know, insular America versus America and globalism. He's the only president to break the paradigm since World War II of uh, trying to go his own lone wolf route. Yeah, you know, it's it struck me that maybe the Buchanan heirs and the Andrew Johnson heirs are rejoicing in the fact that Donald Trump may squeeze in underneath them because they seem to be perennial uh, last two presidents on the order of best and worst presidents. No question. I mean, it's a bullish time for James Buchanan. (laughs) You know, I always say when we do these presidential polls for which aren't scientific, but it's a way to think about presidents. You never would want to be ranked lower than William Henry Harrison uh, Harrison was president for only one month and died. So if you're ranked below him, it means you did damage to the United States, either through inaction, either through corruption, either through authoritarian impulses. And clearly Trump is ranked below William Henry Harrison. I think he's the worst president, but there's some who still might cling to Buchanan's do-nothingness before the Civil War. But Buchanan was a great gentleman and a, a wonderful personality. He was a very likable um, figure. While Trump, by nature, has worked to, uh, is pro-disuniting of the country. He sees himself as a uh, revolutionary strongman. If you really read a lot about Huey Long of Louisiana, you will see a lot of Trump traits coming out of that demagogic tradition uh, where you feel you're above the law. Yeah. Uh, in um, preparation for the interview, I, I was telling you that I read um, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Hunter Thompson's 1972 um, book of, of that can- campaign. And in reading it and watching the description of the George Wallace rallies, who was who was attending those rallies and what message uh, Wallace was um Giving the audience, it struck me as a as very close parallel to 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 Trump. There's no question about it. I mean, the Wallace voters are now the Trump voters, and you know, Hunter Thompson also once wrote a book called The Hell's Angels, and yeah. it's a it's a classic book of um, the, the sort of um, angry white male looking to find a club to join, and sometimes using neo Nazi. Um, um, rhetoric and even wearing swastikas, the Hell's Angels. And when you watch the 
the the in, insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, you can see that strain that Hell's Angels have turned into these sort of QAnon all for one and one for all and all of this. And it comes out of, uh, and Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels, he, he traced it back to the Okies uh, out of the Dust Bowl that came to California uh, and couldn't find employment and weren't part of the, what they thought was the elite or the wealthy society. And a lot of the Trump voters are people, I think, uh, white men hitting hitting their 50s. They may have uh, had opioid addiction, and they've been having trouble finding traction in a tech, tech economy. Our country probably, uh, we should have thought a little more about with the technological revolution. Um, you know, Jack Kennedy made sure a lot of the space program, NASA was in southern states, it spread the wealth around into Houston and Mobile and, um, you know, the space coast of Florida and Newport News, Hampton, uh, Oklahoma. Um, well, the tech really centered in Silicon Valley and Seattle, Austin. And we, we left, I, I believe, a lot of the Midwest down. I mean, there was no tech revolution uh, manufacturers leaving the country. And so states like Georgia, Wisconsin, Ohio, was what we call the Rust Belt. I don't, but people do. Uh, they, they, they're hurting to finding jobs. And uh, they were angry and felt betrayed. And Trump um, came off as a kind of savior for the, the, um, that, that group of Americans. And hopefully now they're, they've been fed a steady diet of conspiracy theories online. I, we, I guess the seed's been there my whole childhood and yours, Michael, when you get food at a register and a National Enquirer was in front of you with space alien stories and the like. And you, most people scoffed it off, those kind of stories. But that particular tabloid had a corrosive effect. Uh, it grew on the Internet, and then it met the Rush Limbaugh alt-right world, and it created a, um, a very men- a menace on the loose, this um, right-wing movement that our country extremism that we've been grappling with for a long time, but it's had a resurgence uh, under Trump. Yeah. The thought is that Trump may end up in history as one of the worst presidents for many reasons, but also one of the more consequential presidents for what we're calling Trumpism. And, and what we don't know is for how long that will stick around. Wallace was, you know, relatively short-lived. Joe McCarthy was relatively short-lived. Huey Long was relatively short-lived. Trump seems like it could have legs. Do you, do you see it as, as something that could have legs and be here for a while? I think it could have legs if it sticks to the characters you mentioned. But what this trial, the Senate trial, is Izzy Benedict Arnold. Did he try to destroy American democracy? Is he a traitor, in a sense, to our democratic principles? Uh, but Trump's going to be, you know, I've noticed I live in Austin, Texas, and I go down on the Gulf Coast, and they're starting to not frown upon Confederate flags or ban them on beaches. But you see Trump flags, it's become the symbol of the Confederacy in a way, like you're allowed to still fly a Trump flag so I suppose um, it's still going to be there in the John Birch white supremacy world uh, that Donald Trump will live tall and mighty. 
Um, and he might even make it into like the black velvet paintings that you get at roadside kitsch stands in Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge or something, uh, meaning, you know, that they still are places that sell Confederate memorabilia. And to, and we just recently had, we're, we're having a big debate about all of that right now, you know, whether to have Confederate monuments and the like, but that's Trump's people. I mean, the, the faces of the Confederates chiseled on Stone Mountain in Georgia, the people that still like Jefferson Davis and Bedford Forrest and the uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and the like are people that are going to stick by Trump to the bitter end. They feel he's been the only great president of their lifetime, and they think he's one of the greatest presidents of all time. Yeah. John Dean wrote a book asking the question of, uh, I think it was called something like authoritarian nightmare, asking uh, pollsters um, to answer the question of who are the Trump voters. And that class that you've just described was a substantial part of it, but white evangelical voters was the second half of the Trump um, base, it, it turns out. You know, Michael, when Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in Birmingham and wrote that incredible a letter from the Birmingham jail, it was written to the ministers. How can you be immoral? You are, you are supposed to be uh, representatives of, of, of Christ and the voice of, of the Lord. And I felt that a lot in the Trump years. I was very disappointed that the evangelical community didn't speak out uh, when we, they recognized that Trump was um, marketeering hate speech. And they di didn't, as a group, uh, of, and by and large, there were some individuals who did, but didn't serve as a corrective force because Trump represented, I think, a, a kind of um, a white American, you know, privilege, the fear of the other, of a multicultural America. And um, I'm still disappointed in a lot of, of Christian leaders in our country that they, uh, were, they, they swallowed Donald Trump's act hook, line, and sinker. And it would have been helpful, even if they supported him, to have had big moments of dissent to kind of tame him. But they didn't. Um, they were too lazy to do that. And in the end, it's, I think, done damage to um, what the modern evangelical movement is supposed to be all about. Yeah, the um, book Cast by Isabel Wilkinson talks about how it is that the this white group that we're talking about votes in the way they vote, much of which is against their economic interests. And, and she picks up on the theme that you just mentioned which is this, this fear of multiculturalism and that they're going to lose their status as the majority class and that that um, supersedes all else, that they are not about to lose their standing in the hierarchy of our American caste system. Yeah, you know who um, speaks? So I have a great new admiration for Dave Chappelle, the comedian. He's an incredible social satirists like Lenny Bruce or Dick Gregory, and um, he's moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where Antioch is. It used to be a beehive of uh, the anti-nuke and, and racial integration in Antioch, Ohio. But his, his social commentary about how white people would feel of being the new underclass, uh, meaning that new um, immigrants from Vietnam or China or India and Pakistan and Africa are excelling in the American economy while 
some of those traditional white, um, 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 you know, societies are, are in decline and it creates a massive amount of anxiety. Race is a big theme, I think, in what's been going on right now in our country on, and so, you know, and all you have to do is watch the Super Bowl and, you know, and watch some of the, um, you know, that feeling of um, the Black Lives Matters movement in 2020, it really made an impact uh, on that even professional sports now are talking about the reconciliation and racial um, um, incidences. And you're now having modern professional athletes having a, you know, kind of a two-pronged portfolio. They're great athletes, but they're also now becoming outspoken um people on social justice issues in a very um, strong way. So um, there's going to be a lot of commentary about what we're in, who Donald Trump is. But in the end, you know, the Lord looks after us, right? I mean, Trump is human. He's going to, he's going to like we all do, get older and more frail. Um, he's going to lose some of his gusto if he doesn't have social media platforms. And it's very easy to become a has-been, an ex in American life. It's a very dynamic and fast society. Uh, so he'll always, he may emerge as a powerful cult figure, but I don't think he represents the zeitgeist of America in 2021 and beyond. Maybe that's right. The, the um, authors of um, How Democracies Die, um, Levitsky and Ziblatt, talk about how democracies die and that the most common way that democracies die is at the hands of the duly elected leaders who slowly do away with the institutions of, of democracy. And if you ask them, is this what Donald Trump started? Did he create this? Their answer is, oh, no, no, no. He's the product of what Newt Gingrich started when, and you mentioned this, when Gingrich came to power, the attack on the institutions of democracy has really began then and and that we're we're not at the beginning of this but we're at the logical sort of midpoint or something of what the gingrich revolution i hate to use that word in connection with gingrich um started do you I see agree. it that way yeah i do see it that way uh very much so that the way this has started, but it wasn't even just Gingrich and not, you know, in, in 1993, when Bill Clinton became president, nobody was using email. It was like, uh, and by the time Bill Clinton left office, people were doing a billion emails, you know, zooming around the world. Uh, the technology has just gotten so fast since the 1990s. And the idea of um, people don't believe in, you know, that, that the scientists are for hire, that, um, that we, we don't have a referee like Walter Cronkite, you know, declaring balls and strikes in politics that everybody turns to. Uh, I wrote a biography of Cronkite, and when he left CBS in 1981, Journalism had like a 70% approval rating. Now you're looking at them at 15, 20% or something, meaning our country's lost a lot of faith in journalism. People tend to go to right, left, uh, their echo chambers. And I, we've got a lot of problems in our country. Uh, but I do believe Trump's not just a manifestation of the Gingrich, 
but of the prediction of people like Andy Warhol, um, that we become a celebrity society, that what matters, what Trump always saw is how many followers I have on Twitter. And that he would judge, you know, pecking orders of power by who had the most followers in that um, context. And, you know, he was, a, he was the original celebrity for so long, Donald Trump, since 1980s, that it was an odd odd but in some ways understandable leap from reality TV to um, reality TV politics. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that um, that's what he latched on to. But again, back to uh, how democracies die, they talk in terms of four particular attributes, attacks on the media, demonization of opponents and with threats to jail them, an unwillingness to accept election results and incitement to violence by their supporters. And so it seems to me that that's sort of the world that we are in at the moment and that their Congress is essentially allowing it, facilitating the democracy, the, the death of our democracy. Yes. But on the other side of that, I agree with all of that. I went and got my first, um, my first shot for a vaccine today. I felt great getting my first vaccine and every person there was a volunteer. I talked to a number of people and there we were tired and it was the, we forget just on a grassroots local level, just incredible democratic spirit that's still alive across the land uh, or we wouldn't even be able to be doing a rollout of that va- of vaccinations like this. And then we start thinking about the nurses and the doctors and the people that are still serving us um, in, in, in the government. And I, I get more hopeful that we just had a bad confluence of things that all that you're mentioning, how democracy dies are there, but maybe we had our wake up call, maybe somehow with the double impeachment of Donald Trump, Maybe January 6th brought some people to a new sensibility. Maybe we took our democracy for granted, and maybe now we won't. After all, see what you want about 2020. It was record voting turnout, Um, and people voted like never before. And if you and I did this podcast four years ago, I would have been complaining to you about the lack of voter turnout. So people uh, uh, maybe are waking up to how fragile our democracy is. Uh, That might be Pollyannish of me, but, you know, I've read enough about history to know that you really get another pillar of a doomed democracy would be to lose hope in the democracy. So I think we have to make sure that we stay as upbeat as we can. People don't talk about things that are uh, uh, like why there's no protest on college campuses, uh, like in, unlike the 60s and 70s, uh, they're mute. Uh, everybody, it, it all will turn back to the technology revolution going so fast, and people thinking every the whole their whole life is on their iPhone. And uh, and we we might need to have a there. There are good writers writing about a new way to look at the world, like the great poet Wendell Berry in Kentucky. Um, people that are dealing with climate change and how we might be might be able to eventually here create a kind of new green grid that could become an envy of the world. Um, 
we have a lot going on, but yes, like one can't deny our national politics are quite dysfunctional right now. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm going to come back in a, in a few minutes to talk about culture on uh, American campuses because it's of concern to me, um, safetyism and 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 the and the like. But speaking of you know, sort of moving forward, there's a lot of conversation these days about how Biden has to unify. He has to be a unifying president. Honestly, um, I don't even know what the word unity means. Um, And what I'm wondering what your thought is, 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 is unity something to strive for in the Congress or is this Congress, should this Congress be like the Congress of 1861 through five, which probably was the most progressive Congress in the history of the United States. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what took place then, how come it got to be progressive, and whether or not that should be a template for how the current Congress acts. Um, I'm not sure. I agree with your first premise about unity. Uh, you know, it's an easy word to say, Um I think Biden is having, I'm being premature here, but it looks like he's on a very smooth rollout in the sense of of tone and demeanor. Um, It's really been quite remarkable. Um, I I feel that he seems almost to have more zip in him than he did during the campaign. Um, I think that his decency is coming out there. I know people find him boring at times, but um, just the idea of a decent person in the White House uh, Start, starting to feel a bit refreshing. I think Biden is correct to try to do some bipartisan work. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, one can wait till right after the impeachment story, you know, second impeachment, and see if there's some openings for bipartisan. If not, Biden's going to keep doing what he's doing, and there'll be a lot of executive orders. But earlier, Michael, you pointed to the first question to me was the problem of in of impeachment after impeachment, there's also a problem of, of governing just by executive power because uh, once the president signs executive orders, they can be undone four years uh, later. And we and that won't be a van. We're just going to be going back and forth of undoing each other's executive orders on the Republicans, undoing Democrats and the like. Um, so it would be healthy, uh, helpful to find a way to get a healthy Congress. Now, in 1860s, the South left um, and it allowed to the more of the states' rights or in pro-slavery, uh, obviously, um, elements of the country got isolated and it was an opportunity to do some big federal things. I mean, people forget that Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, you know, saved Yosemite National Park. Um, he built the transcontinental um, um, railroad connecting the east to the west. You have um, the really the beginning thinkings of land grant colleges in the um, coming out during Lincoln in the Civil War. So there was always this sense of federal lar- largesse, and I think that's what you're going to see Biden try to do. Uh, but they're going, in order to be successful. Um, I think he's going to have to focus on the states in need, and they seem to be everywhere. I mean, what do we do with California forest fires if it's a new trend every summer? How do we save the Lake Erie from being dead? 
what do we do about the uh, if the uh, due to global warming uh, our our and climate change, some of our cities are more vulnerable to hurricane season. If I ha- get pessimistic, it's our 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 list of deferred maintenance is, is deep and long. And meanwhile, we're we're either beating each other up right and left with a stick, or we're doing executive power. However, the idea of unity usually only comes in the big sense when a, a you know, like Lyndon Johnson has 67 Senate votes and you can do Medi- Medicaid and Medicare and civil rights acts. Um, but that's not going to, it doesn't look like one side's going to be dominating the other for a while. So there, and I, you don't want unity by being attacked. You know, we don't want to have a terror attack that unifies the country or a war that unifies the country. I just hope that we can find a way to make perhaps public health um, did we learn anything from COVID-19? Can we have um, a new kind of SWAT team for um, to deal with pandemics in, in, in the future? Or are we just constantly going back to ground zero in an endless cycle of uh, you did that, so I'll do this back and forth? Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess I wasn't in talking about the uh, way the Democrats should legislate in the Congress. I wasn't so much your point is well taken about executive orders, but I guess my thought was the Democrats have two years when they're in the majority, and we have no idea what 2022 will bring. We know there's a process called reconciliation where you can pass a bill with 51 votes, which is what the Democrats have, or you can seek a more broad bipartisan bill. We saw that fail in the relief bill, the Republicans wanted a $600 billion bill. The administration wanted $1.9 billion. There was no compromise to be had. And so what Biden said is, you know what? We're going to do it by reconciliation. We'll take out the stuff that can't be reconciled, like the minimum wage, and we're just going to pass this. And E.J. Dionne wrote a piece in the Washington Post not too long ago, which he said to the Democrats in Congress, essentially, you can protect the filibuster or you can protect democracy. And what he meant by that is that there are bills pending S1 and HR1, which are to end gerrymandering and, and bring more democratic processes by mail-in voting and, and, and registration at time of birth sort of stuff. And he said, you can either let this filibuster, you know, be, and you'll never get any of this stuff passed. Or you can just say, you know what, like, and that was my analogy to the 1861, those uh, Confederate um, senators were gone, and um, no one was waiting around for them to come back. They just said, now is our opportunity, and let's do all those things that you just described, land-grant colleges and transcontinental railroad and, 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 and the like. And the country was better off for it. So I guess what I was asking you is, would we be better off for it if we forgot this notion of the unity and moved toward the protection of our democracy while we have the while the Democrats have the majority? Yes, I think we're going to be better off doing that, Michael. I do think Biden um, wants one more shot at the bipartisan approach post impeachment two of Trump, meaning you maybe give a COVID one more chance or another bill one more chance. But I would say by April. If it's clear that the Republican Party is one of defiance, 
um, against anything Biden's trying to do, then he's going to have to use that advantage, as you suggest, of, um, you know, of the 51. Remember, though, when Barack Obama came in, um, you know, he did the great stimulus package. He saved General Motors. Um, and then we did as a nation the Affordable Health Care Act, and we did it without um, any Republican participation in the Affordable Care Act, and it gave birth to the Tea Party movement. Um, and so the fear of Biden does that is the constant threat of, um, of, of a right-wing kind of um, a, a radical terror movement. Um, you know, I toured the Oklahoma City bombing site, and it's, um, you know, it's mind boggling what a truck with fertilizer could do to human lives. And so Biden's going to have to weigh that idea of unity or the, being the softer approach and finding ways to get things done. If he goes too hard, uh, the, the, it, it conceivably could create a, a what's now what we call like a neo-civil war. It could create a civil war-like environment. Yeah. And we'll have to see. It's a it's a delicate balance that he has to play. But I tend to favor progress to unity, which isn't really unity. It's just paralysis. Yeah, and there may be a way on the when I'm echoing my own self. I'm worrying about hate speech and these hate sites. Uh, there's got to be ways. I think one of the most refreshing moments for me was when Trump was off of Twitter. And um, and Facebook stood up. I don't think that we can be afford as a country to have uh, um, death threats and create and talks of of um, destruction uh, considered free speech. Uh, and I'm everything and all about free speech my whole life. But my gosh, it got it's gotten out of control, and we might have to find ways to deplatform people. Um, and that's going to the people you deep platform are going to get very angry and they will seek some kind of retaliation for that. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about media censorship in our history in, in world war one. Um, you know that they took to prosecuting people who spoke against the draft in world war one, Eugene Debs and, uh, and socialists, but the United States postal service, also banned as unmailable socialist publications like the masses and the American socialist. And you couldn't lawfully even mail that in, in world war two. Um, the Smith act was passed to pro- prohibit people from advocating the overthrow of the government. It was eventually more or less um, found unconstitutional, but, in these times of crisis, there is a sort of a default to some sort of censorship. And what I worry about with Twitter and the other social media platforms banning people is we now, in, in, in World War I and World War II, it was, in some sense, it was, at least it was the government making these determinations of what was in the national good. Whether I agree with them or not, they were making that determination sort of theoretically thinking about the national good. Here we have private social media companies exercising the prerogative of what is 
what is allowed and, and what isn't allowed. And to me, I find that really worrisome. Yes, it was nice not to have to read Donald Trump's tweets, but I never read them really anyway. I just decided not to read them, and, and I slept much more soundly as a, as a consequence of it. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about this censorship. And, and, and you, said, you, you said you were pleased, in, in a way, when hate speech was taken down. But it was not just hate speech that was taken down. Trump um, himself was, was, was taken, taken down. And I am more concerned about that than the content of his speech. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think um, good points. Everything that you're saying. Um, there are other. Uh, the, the the what I'm getting back to is the problem of technology um, run wild over people's lives, and there needs to be a kind of timeout moment. Now, if you don't go, if you follow what you're saying, then the best bet now would be: can we reengage young people? to teach people what are hate sites and what aren't, meaning 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. We are a society letting every kid have their iPhone. Nobody, they're naturally gravitating to pornographic sites, hate sites. There's no instruction guide, and we're turning on a whole generation to rubbish. So in my business, Michael, I'm just drenched in conspiracy theories, I'm getting all of my emails. I'm getting is theories of the craziest kind because nobody knows what's factual history or unfactual. So some, we, we've got to address the problem. I don't go on Twitter and I'm not on Facebook because I never wanted to get engaged in that kind of world. Um, because I saw these problems coming to it. I don't think it's empowering of people when you're feeding people lies at a very early age and you're, you're corroding them. So it is a tricky, very, very, very tricky situation. And I go back and forth on it because my whole life is First and Fourth Amendment. On the other hand, I can't, we can't afford another insurrection type behaviors where um, state capitals get, you know, come on, everybody, and let's raid the, the you know, Texas state capitol and burn it. Um, the spreading of information in that way and is creating a, I've never, I've never seen a moment where I was more proud of the work Southern poverty law has done um, over decades, because I kind of thought after Timothy McVeigh in the nineties, this sort of um, um, hate um, conspiracy theories may have been tamed, but the power of the Turner diaries and anti-Semitic screeds and hate sites and, you start getting synagogues bombed and churches burned, and uh, and it's all getting connected via the internet. We have to look at how to how to reform that in some way. Yeah, no, it, it's not. None of the problems we're talking about are simple ones. None of them lend themselves to simple solutions. I guess what my question was getting at, and you you'd answered it well, is does censorship get us? move us forward or does it create the probability of a more um, and, and more, more dangerous reaction against, against it? Because people are going to still be able to communicate. There's no question that they're going to still be able to communicate. And if you put it, if you hide the mechanisms by which they communicate from a law enforcement standpoint, that's much more difficult than if they're out well, there in the open. That's a good point. Um, 
And I think if you use the word censorship, anybody listening to your show doesn't want censorship. Nobody wants censorship. And so it might be a problem with using that word, but, um, thing, but we're, law enforcement needs to then ramp up. Because if you're having this capital of the United States where a group, a ragtag group like that can storm in with a thin layer of police and ended up having deaths. And what I don't want to see is freedom of speech. What about my freedom to go to my U.S. Capitol? Now there are going to be three walls built up that I can't go to my Capitol um, and, and visit it. Um, and, and, and I'm starting to find the quarantining off. Every government building is going to be more and more and more and more out of reach, which I think does is destructive to town hall participatory democracy. If we're making going to a town hall meeting lethal, that you're putting your life on the line to go to your local city council and the mechanism that's causing it are people's communication online, I'll go with your point if the law enforcement could be on that. But what happens if law enforcement's not as as strong and as um, coordinated as we think they are? Yeah, well, we're going to have to see how how it plays out. But it it, it is to me worrisome um, when when we think that we can solve a problem by silencing people um, because I think that tends to actually – exacerbate the, the oh, problems. I, I don't know. P, you know, people go into things and start shouting horrible things at people and they get ejected from places, you know, concerts or shopping malls for that kind of behavior in person. Um, and But the suggestion that that's okay to hide on the internet and it's free speech when it's not free speech, when you do it in a mall, um, we're all tech society now. So, um, I mean, it gets, I mean, there, there are, we're, we're, I think we'll both agree. We got to find a way to get some of these bad operators out of business. And that's what law enforcement is doing now by tracking the perpetrators of January 6th. Right. So an- another worry I have, uh, it feels like I'm a, I should lie down on the psychiatrist's <laughs> couch and have you, um, Tell me not to worry, Michael. But the other thing I worry a lot about in the aftermath of, of January 6th is what I fear is going to be what will be called a new war on domestic terrorism. You know, after 9-11, we had the, the commission set up and the USA Patriot Act was was passed, mm-hmm. and that led to mass surveillance that Edward Snowden uh, revealed, which then had to be pulled back, and the government was lying to us, and it was all in the name of um, of national security. And now we're beginning to see the same sort of conversation around domestic terrorism. And I worry, too, about whether there's going to be an overreaction to this. We've got so many laws on our books that can address the conduct that occurred on, on January 6th that no new laws in my mind are needed, but I'm fearful about how this may be used by what I think are conservative forces to legislate in a way that will make dissent harder. So I was wondering what you think about that. Um, yeah, I worry about that also. Um, I worry about that quite a bit. I, I 
I guess where I'm circling around and maybe it's where uh, with my, my main worry is I have a much more skeptical about the power of, of technology and the idea of just harassment and identity theft. And it, it, to me, this whole America has become, it's like a wild west of people using a tool we've given them to, for nefarious ways and I, I, I keep, you know, if you send a kid to college, you want to believe they can go there and not be living in this sort of constant state of terror. And the amount of stalking that goes on at colleges and people breaking into people, you know, all this, uh, it's worrisome to me. So I come back, I think, a little more when I talk about what's going wrong with our democracy. I tend to look at technology, by that meaning social media, as probably a larger concern of mine than it is yours. Uh, I, I just see that that's where the, it's all, that's where this is all happening at. And I'm not technologically sophisticated enough. I, for all I know, Michael, we're in the middle of a cyber war right now with China. Uh, it's weird out there in that cyber world and how we're going to get good old American democracy back without some restraints on what are, what I just, I've lost track of how, um, you know, I live in real fear of cyber attack, how our whole electric grid could be knocked out, how that's not really American national security when we're, um, you know, we're an inch away from blackouts by another country if they wanted to do it to us. And we're, we're fighting each other so much on other things and maybe we can pull together and try to think about a way to make sure our country is protected, that sites aren't being broken into from outside countries too. I mean, we thought in my life when you and I were young that uh, Russia would have interfered with an American election in 2016. That disturbs me about the undermining of our democracy, that outside countries can come in through the internet and destroy our democratic process. That worries me as much as anything. Yeah, I think that is a is a legitimate worry. I'm not sure whether protecting that requires any sort of new domestic terrorism legislation or the right of Twitter and Facebook and others to decide who has access to their platform. It's sort of like when we were kids, if you can imagine AT&T, telling us who could talk on the telephone dependent upon what we were saying to, right. to one another. But there are ways for private companies and the federal government to collaborate. Um, and that's what you're worried about is that collaboration, I suppose. Uh, but I would think that um, if you're going to really look at, I mean, right now, you know, anything, anything we've done, I mean, our, one way or another, private companies interact with the federal government on our, our where most of our taxes go on U.S. foreign policy. All of our Boeing and, you know, McDonnell Douglas or any of those big, that's our whole lifetime in the Cold War is government working with corporations. Why shouldn't the federal government work with Facebook and, and Twitter and try to find people that are disrupting the um, this in a very corrosive and dangerous way to our democracy. But I agree with you. It's a slippery slope and you'd have to have people of great merit looking at that. And it is happening. It's not me saying if it would, that is what's going on. 
But yeah. Trump being taken off is scary in its own way, and that's what you're saying, because if he can be taken off. But he, the amount of abuse and the damage he was doing by the time uh, leading into January 6th, it was just getting out of control. When you have a president of the United States calling a state of Georgia and telling them, find me the votes, find me the thousands of votes, I need it. You're watching somebody destroying our institution and to say, yes, but you got free speech rights, and all. It, it's confusing. It, it is confusing. I, I hearken back to what we talked about a minute ago, which is Woodrow Wilson and the Congress of 1917 passing Sedition Act so that they could jail the likes of Eugene Debs, who spent years in jail for talking about the, the anti-draft in World War I. And that's so that, that's what sort of keeps me up a little bit is yeah, will, would, will yeah. we go too far yeah i am very fair and i agree i mean i'm not a fan of woodrow wilson incidentally uh and i'm not a fan of um of john adams for the sedition act and i don't and i i do admire debs in many ways um wilson was an odd bird i mean he you know we here we had the spanish flu epidemic and he wouldn't even mention it once why we were sending soldiers into ships to go to Europe and dying like flies due to the pandemic. And Wilson wouldn't even tell the soldiers when they were training what their, the, the dangers were at that time. I mean, and we're a country that sent soldiers into Vietnam and 58,000 people killed for what war? Why did we send them there? I mean, we can always be suspicious of things and I wouldn't have thought I would be worried about, um, the internet so much, but 2016 really woke me up when I saw that Russia had the capacity to do that. And um, so, any rate, yeah, no, it, it's hard. And and, and you raised a, a question that struck me. You said you want your kids to be able to go to college and and feel safe. And I don't think we have time to really delve into it deeply. But you have the Coddling of the American Mind book, the um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Lukianov book, which talks about how on college campuses there's this issue of safetyism and triggering warnings and people have the right to feel safe. And all of that sort of merges into this notion of of limitations on free speech as well. So I, yeah. I don't know if you see it at Rice, this whole notion of um, the calling out of, of people and the safetyism and triggers and snowflakes and all those sort of words that define yeah. the, the, your students. Well, and the fear of identity theft and don't trust anybody where not talk to people. Uh, and now with COVID keeping our distance, rightfully so, but I worry that we're detaching ourselves from human beings, and we're um, and that we're 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 losing our our humanity, and that we may also be out of all the things we're talking about, it might boil down to we're in a spiritual crisis in our country, and people can debate what spiritualism means, but the amount of hate that people have towards each other seems to me to be at a an epic state. I don't think since the Civil War, the amount of hatred that American has towards other Americans is as great as right now. And I'm just hoping Biden can take the temperature down on that. Uh, Gerald Ford was a transition president. Uh, you know, the pardoning 
of, of Nixon and getting us out of the Vietnam War. Uh, we, nobody marks him down as one of the great presidents, but he maybe did a national service. Perhaps Joe Biden's demeanor right now is a gift to the country to just cool people's jets a little bit. It's going to, they're going to flare up because of the impeachment trial again. But maybe in a month from now, things will just calm down. There'll be a collective sigh of relief that if we can defeat COVID, that American ingenuity with vaccines works, meaning if we can beam ourselves to the fall and there's a World Series game with a, with a, a full stadium, if, if we could have that, maybe it'll bring a new Americanism together. Maybe they'll become like the 1920s were uh, for uh, uh, just a bit of frolic and good times and people feeling uh, the blessings of our country. Um, there's a lot of, of people that don't believe in the U.S. federal government right now, and I do. The people that work for our federal government are some of the best people. I'm writing right now about people at Interior Department, and these are salt-of-the-earth great people. And I get very hurt when I see federal employees that are in state workers and people that are working emergency services and all being treated like dirt and with hatred by people. Um, and hopefully the, the, the sunshine is coming that maybe COVID now has brought us to our senses and we're longing for more human connections. Maybe Trump makes us uh, realize that authoritarianism here is real, like Sinclair Lewis's famous novel or the writings of Philip Roth. You know, I mean, it could happen here. Fascism could come to America. I didn't believe that 10 years ago. And I do now. So, yeah, maybe everybody takes part in new democracy on a local level and trying to make your local community better while we figure out the problems in Washington at a different level. Yeah. Well, uh, to that point, um, and and, um, recognizing my agreement with that, I, um, this election cycle ran for elective office in, in Washington, D.C., the Advisory Neighborhood Commission, which is essentially the first point of contact between the citizens and the District of Columbia government. And I was elected, and I'm now a, um, an elected official dealing with overcrowding in schools and potholes on our, on our streets. And, um, we have a racism, yeah, we have a a racism task force to deal with the lack of affordable housing in our neighborhood. So I I agree with you. I I think that rather than be cynical, if you want to be part of the solution, join in, be part of the solution. Some of it is local. I mean, I'm, I've been dealing with climate change quite a bit, and young people want to know what they can do. They're overwhelmed by it, as we all are. Uh, When glaciers are melting in the Himalayas, and you know, um, and and, but then I start. What can I do environmentally? What about your local community? Are you working to keep your local river clean? Are you keeping the your you can go do things on a local level and be very power. Uh, Every state park in America needs a friends group and. And people are out there volunteering and doing things and running for office. And I want young people to run for office, not be afraid of politics, afraid if they run, they're going to be hacked, harassed. Uh, you know, I don't think that's what being our public service, you know, should be. But congratulations, Michael. Somehow I missed that. I follow you and admire you tremendously. And, uh, I, and, and I truly, you're, you're, uh, 
brilliant at what you do, and I didn't know you did that. And I'm 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 envious of you, and maybe you're going to encourage me to run for something local. Well, I, I can tell you, it was wonderful uh, experience to run. My wife was the campaign manager, and she's now my chief of staff. And wow, there's nothing I write, um, no testimony that I edit or. Um, article that I write that Amy doesn't um, review and edit and, and improve upon. So it's been a lot of fun. The, the, just today, we're finishing testimony on the need to prevent stormwater runoff for the reasons that you know so every, everything about for your Teddy Roosevelt in Alaska and all the conservation work that, that, that you are a champion of, which you are a hero of for me. We're trying to figure out how we can get more porous surfaces on our roadways and, and other bioretention facilities so that the waters don't run into the rock creek and pollute it. Absolutely. There you go. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm trying to work with my boyhood river, the Maumee River in Ohio, which is so polluted you can't even touch the water. And, you know, by coincidence, I interviewed the other day Ralph Nader, Still around 86 years old and still, um, you know, being Ralph Nader. And he, I asked him when he grew up in Connecticut and he said, I, you know, I just couldn't believe that the two rivers in my little town of Connecticut, everybody told me as a boy, don't go in it. You'll get sick. Don't touch it. And he kept wondering why, why can't I swim in my local river? When, when did the rivers get taken away from us? And that kind of thing, saving a river has to take place on a local, level and then you'll get the national attention but i'm gonna can i ask you a question sure of course if do you, do you think washington dc and let's call it the next 20 years do you think it will become a state i hope so the license plates in the district of columbia as you know read taxation without representation we we are as large as some states we pay an enormous tax uh, rate and yet we have no voting representation in the in the Congress and I think that we have to stop being the last colony and start being a state and one of the things that I was so disappointed in in the Obama presidency was that they never pushed statehood even when they had a veto-proof majority in the Senate they never pushed statehood it's complicated I'm sure. Um, the, the, the explanation for it. But I, I think that there's no acceptable answer to why we shouldn't be a state. And I think there are a lot of very terrible reasons why we aren't a state, uh, such as the, dem- the, the demographics of, of, of who we are in the District of Columbia. Well, I, I, I hope that that happens, because I think that would be a big a, one of the things to fight for in Washington right now, this long without statehood seems to me to be ridiculous. And, yeah. um, and I don't know how long it'll take, but someday I believe it'll be a state. I don't, I'm hoping I'll be around for it. Well, I'm hoping you'll be around for it. What I'm hoping you'll be around for, because we've pretty much come to the end of our time and I have pages of notes that I want to talk to you about Jack Kerouac and Bob Dylan and, Ken Kesey and the pranksters and your magic bus trip. And we don't have time, but can I invite you to do a part two and we'll do culture? I'd love it. I, I, you know, my friend, 
Brian Lamb at C-SPAN, who created C-SPAN, always tells me that I should, he likes when I talk about American culture, but because I'm a presidential historian, people never want to ask me about American culture. But uh, I got to know those people pretty well. I'm, um, I did the big interview this year for Bob Dylan in the New York Times, uh, his only major interview since um, um, since COVID. And the Magic Bus was just taking college kids and then high school kids all around the country visiting uh, sites, historic sites, um, going places. If you're going to study Gettysburg, go to Gettysburg. You know, you're going to talk about the Rio Grande River, go to the Rio Grande River. So that kind of education, if you can go travel in, in America, for, I'll end by just telling you my loves for this country. I mean, I, I just love the United States. I believe in it. And I've made my life studying our country's history and culture and I am optimistic that our better days are still are still ahead of us because I see the strides we're making all the time. And even whatever community you're in, I've watched local and I'm in Austin, Texas, and been watching people. So many people are good in this country and are doing well. And we're letting them down with uh, with, you know, things like Citizens United and and um, uh, perhaps overzealotry on um, and in on the Internet. But we're going to get our democracy back together. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. And uh, I think that when we study in our next uh, conversation, Dylan and and, and Carrick and others, we'll we'll see what they were all about. I I know that you've talked about Kerouac and the Beat Generation. And I didn't realize until I studied your, your writings on this that the Beat Generation came from the Beatitudes the, the 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 blessings um, listed by Jesus in the Sermon uh, of the Mount, and and so if we can return to the Beatitudes uh, and create a, a new sort of beat generation, it doesn't necessarily be go go go, better to burn out than to fade away, but but something that's more spiritual in its um, underpinnings, I think we have a chance. Yeah, and and I've been writing about Dr. Albert Schweitzer and the great Nobel Prize winner's idea of reverence for life, that we've got to look, just look after people. Don't, you know, we're, the fact that we have mercury poisoning or um, dirty water and, and um, you know, treating human beings and animal life in America, you know, sometimes very shabbily. We need to just respect each other. And so, again, I, there's, I think there's a role for the uh, a spiritual revolution in our democracy. We may have gotten to money-oriented and not enough soul-oriented in the recent decades. Yeah. So we'll end now. We'll tell everybody to go listen to Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming or Shot of Love or Saved albums um, to start them on their spiritual journey. How's that? That's good. Let me pick a song we both like. I know that Every Grain of Sand. Why don't people go listen to Bob Dylan, Every Grain of Sand? One of the most brilliant songs he's written on the Shot of Love album. Uh, you can find it on Spotify or, better yet, go buy the, buy the CD so the royalties go to the artists. Very good. Um, yeah, that's uh, – um, and one, the last one I like on his new album is a song called Key West. And I hope people listen to his, the new Dylan song, Key West. Yeah, I, I, uh, we'll talk for a minute. So I, I like – um, I contain the multitudes. And in fact, in your interview of Dylan in the New York Times, one of the things that you said that, that struck me so was you point out to Dylan that he says, 
in that song, I Contain the Multitudes, there is the line, I sleep with life and death in the same bed. And you asked him about death, and he, he was saying that life is transient, and everybody is frail when it comes um, to, to death. And, and then I was reminded of your writings again. You see, I study you. Um, <laughs> and, and that um, in the end of On the Road, he says the only thing we know for sure is the forlorn rags of growing old. So there's, there's this notion there between these two writers of age and death and mortality. And Kerouac was a devout Catholic. And I don't know what Bob Dylan is now. He was different things at different times, but he's always been spiritual. Yeah. Well, you look that we, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, that, that's what I'm saying. I like this really short Donald Trump. If you go, you know, Bill Clinton used to keep in the Oval Office a piece of moon rock. And whenever he would think something was big, he'd look at it and it's, you know, a billion of years old, the moon rock. We're living in a very small moment in time. History of seeing dictatorial bent people like Donald Trump all the time. He's obviously different, but that kind of personality is not new to humanity. And so, um, and so it's just time, in my view, we realize our time is precious and short, fill it with love, community, um, you know, turn to the right people to get inspiration to, like Martin Luther King Jr., um, and don't and stay away from, uh, you know, the hate mongers. And I, uh, things will get better if we can learn to do that. I agree. So let's end on that optimistic note. We'll come back and talk about uh, the magic bus and further and, and the other uh, of the beat generations and, and we'll have a much more um, uplifting conversation. You got it. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.